Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. I'm also active on Twitter and Substack, so I hope to see you there. Recently, Chris Irons of the Quoth the Raven podcast put out a warning that stocks are a, quote, time bomb, highlighting the disconnect between an economy that says incoming recession be speckled with bank crashes whilst the stock market floats on wings of gossamer. I've talked a lot about the economic data, but we can sum it in the conference board's index leading indicators, everything from jobs to profits, which have been falling for over a year. And yet, although the S&P 500 has fallen about 8% from its peak last year, it's still historically very expensive. For example, the Schiller PE is almost double its usual level, meaning if a company makes a billion dollars a year, it costs 31 times that, 31 billion, where historically that should be closer to 16. And remember that historical 16 is dominated by non recessions. So 85% of the time, the economy is not, in fact, headed into recession. So we are now currently double that historical, mostly non-recession number. Meanwhile, the Buffett indicator, which divides the stock market by GDP, is similarly overvalued, higher than it is about 90% of the time. This is odd because not only is recession either here or imminent, depending who you believe, and that's according to banks, professional economists, the yield curve, and even the Fed itself, it's especially odd considering the degree of external chaos in the world right now is much higher than in most recessions. Between the most aggressive rate hikes in 50 years, the collapsing banks, war and a near coup in one large nuclear power, and even potential conflict between the U.S. and yet another nuclear power. And yet, not only are markets historically overvalued, we are actually still seeing speculative bubbles from everything from crypto to AI. So why the disconnect? I think the clues are the timing. Last year, markets felt like they would for a normal recession with the S&P down a third and the Nasdaq down a quarter. But starting in December, so seven months ago, markets started turning and marching much higher with growth stocks like AI outpacing value stocks like utilities. That's normally what you expect in a boom, not when recession is coming. So what happened in December? My best guess is that headline CPI, the inflation rate, started coming down fast enough that stock pickers started hoping the Fed could actually engineer a soft landing. I've talked in previous videos why I think they're wrong, that the so-called rolling recession is due to pent-up pandemic demand and people running down stimulus savings and government benefits, in which case headline CPI coming down is not a rolling recession. It is actually the normal recession talk. So energy and commodities always fall in recessions, while core CPI has in fact barely budged in a year. Indeed, that stuck CPI is panicking central banks worldwide. I've talked about this in a couple recent videos, including the Fed, who is afraid that if you don't kill inflation fast enough, it sticks around for a very long time. Put it together, and I think markets are lulled by the contradictory numbers while they're underestimating what central banks have in store to crush the economy and kill the inflation they fear so much. I'll conclude with another quote from Chris, quote, I'm an idiot and I make mistakes. Wise words. Nobody has any idea how long the market will take to understand economic reality or even if that reality shifts in the meantime. But I do think the disconnect between economy and markets means that investing at this point is a casino. Markets could go up, they could go down, but at some point you are collecting dimes in front of steamrollers. 
A new report from the FDIC says America's four biggest banks have a total of $205 billion in unrealized losses, in other words, hidden losses. The worst was at Bank of America, which the FDIC pegs at a $100 billion hidden hole in its books, while Wells and Morgan are both sporting $40 billion in losses, and Citibank is at $25. I've talked about these in previous videos, but banks have an outrageous legal privilege where they can choose to value their assets not at what they're worth, but at an imaginary price called held to maturity that dreams up what the price might be worth someday in the future. This is akin to losing money at the casino and telling your wife it's all there because you'll make it back next time. I imagine it might actually come as a surprise to many Americans that potentially hundreds of banks are insolvent, but for imaginary prices on their assets. But of course, regulators work for the bank, so banks get to pretend. Unless, that is, depositors get so nervous that they withdraw, which would force the banks to actually sell the imaginary assets at real-world prices. In case you were curious why Yellen, Biden, and Powell move heaven and earth to gaslight Americans into thinking banks are safe. This is exactly what took Silicon Valley Bank down in March, sparking the current bank crisis. In Silicon Valley's case, they started losing depositors because tech was hit, which meant they had to sell some of their imaginary bonds to cover the withdrawals. When they announced a $1.8 billion loss on those sales, depositors panicked and pulled ultimately a staggering 81% of deposits in just two days. This meant the bank had to sell substantially all of its imaginary assets, revealing their insolvency. In other words, the bank was insolvent long before the bank run. They were just allowed to hide it. By the way, that bank run was orders of magnitude faster than any modern bank run, which is why the Fed is exploring ways to lock depositors in so you would have to go down with your failing bank. Mentioned that in a recent video. It's also why Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell are as nervous as cats in a room full of rocking chairs, desperately chanting that banks are 100% rock solid, good as gold, when in fact just four of them just admitted sitting on $205 billion of hidden losses. As for the other 4,000 banks in America, we can only imagine what losses lurk hidden in their books. A March paper from Stanford and Columbia did imagine estimating close to $2 trillion in unrealized losses in American banks, which incidentally would eat up, according to that same paper, roughly 91% of banks' capital buffer, suggesting the entire U.S. banking system is within a percent or two of insolvency. And that was March. A lot has happened between then and now. So what's next? Banks only show their books every quarter, and even then regulators let them hide, fudge, and manipulate. Anything to convince Americans they're sound, even if they are not. So expect quarterly flashes of chaos to drip out one by one, while panicked regulators keep up the rock-solid, good-as-gold talk until, inevitably, they flip to the age-old, nobody could have seen it coming. Last week saw a big announcement from the Russian embassy in Kenya, not normally the authoritative voice of Russia, but stick with me, that the BRICS group of anti-dollar countries would be issuing a gold-backed currency. This set off a flurry of excited speculation and matching dismissals. Now, for starters, Russia has spent years claiming a gold-backed currency is imminent, yet it never happens. Indeed, the Russian embassy in Kenya is an odd place to announce a transformational shock to the world's currency architecture, while India, one of the main BRICS members, has already said it will not play ball. Still, in previous videos, I've laid about why a genuinely gold-backed BRICS could savage the U.S. dollar, indeed all fiat monies, whatever the Russian embassy in Kenya thinks about it. 
The key is how gold backing is structured. The version that most threatens the dollar is one where you can actually trade your paper for physical gold. This is how currencies worked a hundred years ago. So a dollar was literally 20.67 to an ounce of gold. You could take $20.67 to the bank. You could walk out with an ounce of gold. I've mentioned in previous videos why this gold-backed currency would have to be a new BRICS currency rather than backing one of their national monies, the ruble or the yuan. Because gold backing, say the Chinese yuan, would render Chinese exports uncompetitive, which would wipe out their factories and probably lead the riots in Chinese cities. On the other hand, a new BRICS currency quarantines the currency strength. It's just an external rail for trade, just like today's dollar is an external rail for Chinese trade. By the way, I've seen commenters claim that China or even BRICS as a whole does not have enough gold to do this kind of backing. I disagree. If people actually believe you'll redeem in gold, the vast majority won't ask for redemption. After all, paper is a lot easier to use. The point is being able to redeem. So you could carry a gold-backed currency on maybe 10% gold backing. And initially, of course, nobody would believe you, so you would have to back much higher. But then again, a BRICS currency won't assume its final form immediately. It would be issued billion by billion. So early on, it needs high gold backing, but there's not much of it. Later on, if it's built trust, it doesn't need very much backing. Having said, even if it is possible to issue a genuinely gold-backed currency, I don't think it happens, even if the Russian embassy in Kenya speaks the truth. So I think more likely is a gold-backed BRICS that looks more like mortgaging existing gold reserves, so gold that countries already have, and converting those into development bank loans that amount to a slush fund to bribe countries off the dollar. That would basically look like the IMF, but instead of handing out money for structural reforms, it instead bribes countries off the dollar. If so, it would be an interesting move towards gold. It might slightly accelerate the decline of the dollar, but it would not be a game changer. Now, the summit itself is still a few weeks away, and we may get more details along the way. But in the meantime, I'd say bricks and gold is a question of big if true, but at the moment, Probably not. Recently, Deutsche Bank released a new survey of professional investors saying that the vast majority expect interest rate hikes to cause more financial, quote, accidents, by which they mean financial markets crashing. Nearly all respondents expected more of these, with most thinking the accidents will be contained, in other words, bailed out, while one in five expect financial accidents that governments will fail to contain. Now, I'm not sure governments using endless stimulus and permanent bailouts to make banks and markets fragile and then going on to break them qualifies as accidents, but whatever they are, professional investors are expecting more of them. In fact, we've already seen storms in multiple countries around the world. The UK pound hit near third world levels of interest on government bonds last year, almost putting the pound below parity with the dollar and threatening to bankrupt some of Britain's largest pension fund. Meanwhile, the Japanese yen has plunged almost 30% in the past 18 months, forcing the central bank to buy up a majority of Japan's $10 trillion in government debt. Keep in mind, Japan's economy is about five times smaller than the US, so that's equivalent to over $50 trillion in federal debt in American terms, with most of that bought up by the central bank. Meanwhile, China is swimming in similar debt levels to Japan, raising fears of a Japan-style long depression even in China. 
In fact, here at home, even before COVID, our own bloated Federal Reserve was leaving trillion-dollar accidents on the street, from the repo crash of 2019 to, of course, the most recent bank crashes beginning in March. A few days ago, the Wall Street Journal ran an article laying out five kinds of accidents that could be on the horizon, driven by frothy stock markets paired with falling profits, higher rates, and a very ominous yield curve that horsemen of financial apocalypse that I talked about in a recent video. Taken together, the journal worries that U.S. financial markets, quote, could be vulnerable to a rapid reversal. They note that just eight tech stocks now make up 30% of the S&P 500, making markets fragile to a miss from any one of them, at which point you can get a rush for the exits that magnifies any drop. And given that U.S. stock markets represent about $40 trillion in wealth, that would hit both households who use Wall Street as a retirement fund, as well as banks and regular companies who park trillions of assets in stocks. The other day I mentioned that given the weak economy, stock markets increasingly feel like picking up dimes in front of steamrollers. Yet, as the journal complains, FOMO, fear of missing out, continues to plow more money into the firing line, meaning that when those accidents come, millions of smaller investors and families will get hit, at which point they pull in their horns, they cut spending to pay down debt, make ends meet, and they join the recession. So what is next? In the famous words of Benjamin Graham, in the long run, the market is a weighing machine, but in the short run, it is a voting machine. So we do not know what is coming in the near term. These next few months will be a cage fight between fear of missing out and FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And so we all must invest accordingly. Fresh data says the Chinese economy is slowing fast, with misses dragging consumer prices to flat on the year, while producer prices, what factories get at the gate, are down 5.4%, which is the biggest drop since 2015. That would make close to 15 years now that the Chinese stock market has actually been flat. What's happening here is Chinese consumers aren't buying, while worldwide recession is hitting both commodity prices and exports. So Americans and European buyers are not picking up the slack, leaving unsold goods in China. The larger background is that China's COVID shutdowns were savage. You'll remember the videos of people welded into their houses or shipped off to city-sized isolation camps. This meant that when the Chinese economy finally reopened, hundreds of thousands of small businesses were gone, shifting the Chinese economy towards bigger businesses that were able to weather the lockdowns. So basically an intensified version of what we have in the U.S. where mom and pops were forced to shut down while Walmart could keep running. The even wider backdrop is that President Xi has been terrible for the Chinese economy, and those chickens are coming home to roost. The three previous presidents managed average GDP growth in China of 8.6%, 9.8%, and 104 That was over decades. That was the Chinese miracle. In 10 years, Xi has managed just over 5% which is pretty standard for a poor country, and that's about half his predecessors. And even that was largely driven by debt. This is because Xi's priority has been control rather than growth. He launched regulatory crackdowns on industry after industry to cut down to size entrepreneurs and take out any potential rivals. One prominent victim was Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, and roughly the Chinese equivalent of Steve Jobs in terms of inspiring young Chinese entrepreneurs. So what is next? 
Normally, governments use deflation as an excuse to pump out yet more trillions in stimulus. In China's case, though, they are already swimming in debt. The Wall Street Journal estimates about $50 trillion of non-financial debt, which has tripled in the past 10 years. And most of that is in heavily leveraged companies. In fact, total debt in China, that's government, business, and household, is now at 295% of GDP, which is even higher than the U.S. at 258%. Chinese have already shifted to deleveraging, paying off debt instead of spending. Households are prepaying their mortgages and paying off their credit cards, while companies are taking money that they might have invested in new capacity and instead paying down debt. The upshot is that manufacturing has actually declined in China for five months now, and private business investment is almost flat on the year. Even the famously freewheeling local governments are now cutting spending and laying off workers. The fear in China is that they go down the path of Japan with a slow motion deleveraging, sucking the energy out of the economy in Japan's case for decades. A downshift in China to two or four percent growth will not play well with a Chinese public who has gotten used to fast growth. They take it for granted at this point. And slow growth paired with already historic highs in youth unemployment could lead to political threats or even social unrest. In the 2008 financial crisis, China was talked up as the cavalry that would come in and save the global economy. This time around, China may actually be in worse shape than the rest of us. New data is causing panic in the woke kingdom as the Wall Street Journal reports that Disney World is, quote, just about empty, with one analyst adding, quote, it's something that nobody would have predicted, just unfathomable. In fact, the journal cites the longstanding metric of wait times, which plunged during the busy July 4th weekend on the year ago comparison. The resort is even offering hotel discounts for Christmas, which is usually a peak. Visitors report the almost post-apocalyptic Mad Max experience of walking onto spaceship Earth without waiting or being able to sit at a good table for breakfast. So what is emptying the Magic Kingdom? Three things, inflation, recession, and brain-dead brand management. First, the economy. Disney hiked prices during Biden's inflation, partly to cope with higher prices, but also to squeeze more money out of visitors. Called yield management, this means maximizing dollars, not bodies. Indeed, low-paying customers get in the way of the high spenders who have to wait in line. Second is the recession itself. Nearby Universal has also reported lower waste times, in other words, less customers, though not as bad as Disney, while entertainment and vacations have been softening nationwide as customers come down from their post-lockdown spending orgy. Finally, of course, the elephant in the room, Disney's brand management. For decades, Disney stood out as one of the most popular companies in America, earned over decades putting out child-friendly content that celebrated family tradition and kid-friendly values. That changed, of course, as Disney hard-pivoted to woke content that probably tickled their BlackRock financiers, but alienated their actual customers who are the ones who pay for things. I used to teach MBA marketing, and one of the key points I emphasize is that you have one job in marketing. Make the customer happy to give you money. You must love your customer to do this just the way they are. Don't fix them. Don't indoctrinate them. Don't change them into who you think they could be someday. And if you don't love them just the way they are, I told my students, either learn to love them or find another job. So Disney, like Bud Light and hundreds of other companies, broke 
this cardinal rule of love your customer. Whether it was chasing awards and kudos from Walk Hollywood or chasing dollars from Walk Wall Street, they turned on their customers and now their customers are turning on them. The solution is simple, of course. Fire anybody who's not customer aligned, refound the branding, the positioning, and in Disney's case, the content to what your customers actually want. But that would mean giving a middle finger to the woke establishment, which will, of course, come down hard on any dissenters. Just ask Tucker Carlson. So I'm not holding my breath. The consequences of a major company turning against the woke Borg are substantial, both in financing and in having the rest of the media industrial complex gang up on them. So Disney or Bud Light may well keep alienating their customers, losing billions, even as they cry in their beer how unfair it all is. And yet there is a ray of hope because the self-immolation of woke brands leaves hundreds of millions of customers sitting like ripe fruit to be picked by any company, any marketer who actually respects them. The majors have unintentionally created a golden opportunity for counter-establishment alternative entrepreneurs to rush in and tempt the customers they neglected. I am, of course, as always, rooting for the disruptors. Rabobank's Benjamin Picton is out with a new report warning the global economy is being, quote, reorganized before our eyes into two competing blocks centered on the U.S. and China, with more countries progressively lining up to join the China side. He cites an April speech by Christine Lagarde, the head of the European Central Bank, who warned that, quote, we are witnessing the fragmentation of the global economy driven by China, where she noted that historically, these kinds of divisions have led to higher inflation, shrinking economies and falling trade. This echoes similar recent warnings from the IMF about, quote, structural decay, shrinking economies in future. This division is accelerating as the U.S. and China tit for tat over political disputes. Recently, China limited the export of raw materials for semiconductors to the U.S., while the U.S. is likely to retaliate with restrictions on providing cloud computing services which are a critical element of AI. So what is driving countries to China? Larry Summers captured it recently, saying that an African diplomat told him that when China comes, they bring a checkbook. When the U.S. comes, they bring a lecture. So China's longstanding approach to third countries in Africa, Latin America, or Asia has been to encourage them to get rich so that they can buy Chinese exports, but otherwise not to interfere in their domestic policies. They indeed bring big checkbooks, building free airports or railroads in return for being able to buy and build natural resources like oil or copper. So China gets the raw materials, the home country gets free airports, plus it can actually monetize a resource that was sitting unused, and China gives them no grief if they are a dictatorship. In fact, China actually helps those countries remain stable by helping them suppress domestic dissent, such as the color revolution type university movements we saw in the Arab Spring. In essence, China is trying to make the whole world into a Singapore, politically stable, one-party autocracy that gets rich and buys Chinese stuff. In contrast, the U.S. uses foreign policy now as a tool for domestic activists, pushing everything from union policy to LGBT rights, including in places like Libya or Afghanistan, where they should know better, and now extending to longtime allies like Uganda or Japan also being pressured on LGBT. Last year, the U.S., of course, upped this game, crippling the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency by seizing Russia's central bank dollars to try and crash their banking system that put the whole world on notice 
us that we will crash you if we don't like you. So China tells these regimes that we want you rich and secure. The U.S. offers instability and impossible woke political demands. Brilliant. So what is next? A recent paper from Cornell and Boston College calculated that organizing the world into protectionist Warsaw Pact style blocks mildly boosts the dollar in the short term. It locks one side in, but sets in motion a steady deterioration that makes the dollar's ultimate loss of dominance, quote, far more likely. So how to stop it? Easy. A more humble, less interventionist policy that learns to respect and tolerate other countries without becoming a world policeman who uses every regional conflict or difference of opinion as an excuse to pick one side and make them into a fresh enemy. China is successfully luring countries one by one into its anti-dollar block. The U.S. needs to stop doing their work for them. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox. And I hope to see you on Twitter or Substack. We'll be watching. See you next time.